Daddy, can you tell us a story, please? Sure. Which one would you like tonight? I'll let you girls decide. Mmm, the Little Mermaid. No, I really like the Lion King. Akuna Matata. Oh, what about the Three Little Pigs? Ah, great idea. Yes, please. All right, all right. Only one story, and then time for bed, okay? Okay, promise. Once upon a time, three little pigs are sent off into the world by their mother to live on their own. Each little pig decides to build a house. The first pig builds a house of straw. The second pig decides to construct a house of sticks. The third pig, however, decides to build one with bricks. One day, a big bad wolf came to town. He tried to get into their house, but the three little pigs didn't dare to let him in. The pigs knew the big bad wolf only wanted to eat them, so they refused. Not by the hair on my chinny chin chin," replied the pigs. "Then I'll huff and I puff and I'll blow your house in," threatened the wolf. With one huff and puff, down went the straw house. And with another huff and puff, down went the stick house. But when the big bad wolf tried to blow the third, he didn't succeed because the house was made of bricks. After failing to blow down the brick house, Mr. Wolf decided to enter through the chimney, and fell into a large pot of hot water. He screamed from the burn and quickly jumped out of the pot, ran away, never to return. The three pigs are saved. So, what's the moral of the story? Well, hard work pays off in the end. You see, the first two pigs were unwilling to work hard. And chose an easier way to build their houses, but these houses couldn't protect them in the face of danger. But the third pig, who didn't shy away from hard work, made a solid house that could protect him and his brothers in the end. Now, time to go to bed. Good night. Good night, sweet dreams, Daddy. Welcome to 2050 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Koko Agboblois. I head up economics, cross-asset, and quant research at Société Générale. In this episode of 2050 Investors, we venture into the domain of bricks, straw, and sticks. And no, I'm not just talking about the three little pigs. We are diving deep into the future of housing. An industry that accounts for 39% of global energy-related carbon emissions, according to the World Green Building Council. How have houses evolved over time, and how can we decarbonize the 2.2 billion houses in the world today? As the physical effects of climate change intensify every year, more frequent and intense floods, heat waves, and forest fires, can we make housing more sustainable, sturdy? And affordable to meet the needs of over 10 billion people on Earth by 2050. And stay tuned till the end of the episode, as Ben Richford, co-head of real estate sector research at Société Générale, will share some insights on the actions taken by companies in his sector to transition to net zero, as well as tips on where to live in 2050 if you don't want to end up submerged by rising waters. Let's start our investigation. Ah, 
The Three Little Pigs, The Original House Hunters. Ha! I've never looked at it from this angle, Siri. This story illustrates how far humanity has progressed in the art of building. Across civilizations, from caves to penthouses, we've tried to build more sturdy homes to protect ourselves from wild animals, natural disasters, and a changing climate. Shelter is one of the fundamental needs for every human being, along with food and clothing. Think Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Hum, the big bad wolf is a nice metaphor for climate change, but pigs, an image for humans? Oh, how fitting, considering your insatiable appetite for consumption. <laughs> you are a bit harsh, but fair. Indeed, pigs are often seen as symbols of insatiable appetite. And human consumption is out of control. Take the food industry, for instance. As discussed in the Tale of Two Futures episode, global average meat consumption today is over 40 kilograms per person per year. Rich countries, meanwhile, average close to 100 kilograms. Some things never change, but I fear they will have to change now because the 2050 final countdown cannot be stopped. That's correct. Let's go deeper. An article from the National Geographic on the development of agriculture shows the link between agriculture and housing. The article noted that agriculture appeared around 12,000 years ago and it changed the way humans lived. We evolved from a nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle to living in permanent settlements centered around farming. This was a game-changer for our species and contributed to the future development of cities and larger settlements. Thanks to a stable climate. This is also very true. It allowed humans to develop their architectural prowess. From mud huts to wooden shanties, from towering skyscrapers to underground bunkers. I'd like to dig more into that. Maybe I can find a book at the library that will sum up the evolution of housing over time. I have a better idea. Why don't we simply go and visit real houses? You mean house hunting or archaeology? A bit of both. Let's take a journey through the history of housing. I'd love that. What about a virtual tour of the British Museum, traveling through history thanks to the power of arts and paintings? Wow, you're inspired this morning, Koku. Okay, let me check the museum collection online and put together a series of artworks that sum up key milestones in the evolution of housing. Yes, please. Birds live in nests, bees in beehives, monkeys in trees, but we humans have made a lot of changes to our houses over the past few thousand years. Okay, we are ready to go. Let's see what you found. Ha! We're starting with the Africa Gallery. There are several artifacts on display from the Stone Age to the Neolithic Age. Animal bones, cups, ancient cutting tools. During the Paleolithic Age, about 25,000 years ago, humans lived under trees and sought refuge in natural caves. Then, fast forward 10,000 years later, in the Neolithic age came the dawn of agriculture and farming. Humans started to build shelters using grass and wood to make tents and huts. Now, let's move to the Egyptian sculpture gallery. It covers a period of over 3,000 years. We see the Rosetta Stone, sarcophagus of Egyptian pharaohs and many statues, from King Ramses to limestone lists of Egyptian rulers. Around 3100 BC, the ancient Egyptians used sun-dried blocks to make flat-topped houses. Pyramids were only for religious purposes and the afterlife. 
The Assyrians, in the next couple of rooms, then improved the concept 600 years later and discovered that baking bricks in the fire could make them harder and enhance their durability. Then we have the Greek and Roman culture section. In southern Europe, the ancient Greeks made some improvements and lived in well-made stone houses with slanted roofs. The Romans further improved the technique and developed the concept of central heating for protection during cold weather. The ingenuity and architectural prowess in southern Europe were quite impressive. The famous paintings called Ancient Rome by Italian artist Giovanni Paolo Panini, produced in the 1750s, depict many of the most significant architectural sites and sculptures from ancient Rome, such as the Colosseum, the Pantheon, the Farnese Hercules, and the Borghese Gladiator. A little further is the department dedicated to China and South Asia. In terms of housing, the Chinese used sun-dried clay bricks, timber frame, and decorative roof, then moved to stone and bricks. Closer to us, during the early industrial period, came a new age. Mass production, use of the steam engine, and large-scale availability of iron became common. Iron beams started being used for supporting the entire structure. Today, our landscape showcases more elaborate houses, complex buildings and towering skyscrapers. Their frames are strengthened by the increasing use of steel, reinforced concrete and glass. The focus transcends mere durability and robustness. Instead, houses must also offer comfort and a luxurious environment to their residents. No need to look at sculptures or paintings. We simply need to look through the windows. That was a fascinating tour. I wonder if the future will bring us Blade Runner cityscapes. Maybe. In your little nice story, you forgot to mention that you chopped many forests, mined mountains, and heated your homes by burning large quantities of fossil fuels. You're right. With the rise of civilizations came urbanization and soil sealing. Overcrowding became the norm in many areas, leading to the noisy and polluting concrete jungles we see today. However, Homes, no matter how sturdy, were never truly prepared for the changing climate. So, what do we do now? Well, there needs to be a more sustainable approach to reducing emissions. While building resilience and adaptability, we're talking about homes that not only withstand nature's wrath, but also blend with it. We also need sustainable, eco-friendly materials. An article from arcdaily.com caught my attention. It talks about the possibility of growing cement. The method, inspired by nature, uses macroalgae that can be found in lakes, rivers, oceans, and fish ponds. The microalgae are placed in water-filled bioreactors and exposed to light-emitting diodes to produce chlorophyll. Enriched with the natural elements and essential nutrients, the water aids the creation of calcium carbonate. Apparently, when mixed with gravel, the bio-cement makes a zero-carbon, bio-concrete with mechanical, physical and thermal traits similar to or better than cement-based concrete. Really? Yes! And there is more. Another article from CNN.com entitled Green Buildings – 18 Examples of Sustainable Architecture Around the World provides some amazing case studies. Take for instance this apartment building located in one central park in Sydney, Australia. Near the building's base, a park ascends through the structure 
with a variety of Australian plants and flowers from 250 species fully adorning the entire building structure. Not only does the building look appealing and pleasant, but it also provides shading, thus reinforcing its defining characteristics. So no more huffing and puffing from the wolf, eh? <laughs> Precisely. But beyond materials, there is also a need to rethink energy consumption. Solar roofing tiles, wind turbines and heat pumps all need to integrate nature into the design to lower a home's carbon footprint drastically. A good report on how to make housing policy more efficient and sustainable is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development's Horizontal Project on Housing. On its website, the OECD says the project aims to ensure that infrastructure achieves its economic, environmental, social and development goals and tackle new obstacles and concerns in planning, investing and funding infrastructure projects. It's like we're going full circle, back to nature. And that's only individual homes, Siri. But we must remember, houses don't stand alone. They are part of a larger collective system, known as cities. And how we design these cities is equally, if not more important. In a previous 2050 Investors episode on smart cities, we discussed how cities can use technology to reduce their carbon footprint with smarter system design for better energy, waste and traffic management, for example. Cities are the ultimate human network. Every home, every street connected like leaves on a tree. Spot on, Siri. Similar to how leaves get their nutrition from branches, houses in a city should easily connect to form networks for energy, communication and social interaction. It's necessary to view cities not as separate groups, but as interconnected living entities. Here's a thought. What if houses weren't just static structures, but more like living organisms? Imagine homes evolving by a sort of natural selection of efficiency. Just as organisms adapt to their environment, our homes too could become more attuned to their surroundings. Evolutionary architecture. Now that's a concept. But then there's the issue of who gets to live in the fittest houses. How do we tackle social class and inequality in housing? That's a good point, Siri. Housing often reflects one's social class, from sprawling mansions and castles to crowded slums. Sustainable housing shouldn't be a luxury, but a universal right for all. Governments have a crucial role to play in making this a reality. The UK government published a 172-page report called Building for 2050 low-cost and low-carbon homes, tackling this exact topic. Currently, homes, both new and existing, account for 17% of greenhouse gas emissions in the UK. The report emphasized the need for an equitable distribution of policies and projects to benefit all. A home for everyone, regardless of their paycheck. I like that. Exactly. Homes, after all, aren't just brick and mortar. They are the stages on which life unfolds. Think about it. The joyful noise of kids playing, parents watching their children grow, age, and then eventually becoming parents themselves. From cradle to grave, houses bear witness to the passage of time. Generations come and go, but these walls, they hold the memories. And often, the final days for many are spent in retirement homes, recalling those moments of joy, love, and even sorrow. 
Sustainable housing, particularly the return to multi-generational living, could offer a solution. Imagine grandparents sharing tales with grandchildren under the same roof, instilling values and ensuring the continuity of family traditions. This is still a common practice in many countries in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. By the way, I found an interesting book called Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. In it, architect William McDonough and chemist Michael Brongart call for a radical change in industry and to move away from the cradle-to-grave mindset. It advocates the reduce, reuse, and recycle methods, which are an important and required framework of circular economy in our lifestyles and our cities. This is all nice and fun, but with rising population and decreasing space, how will we house 2 billion more people by 2050? Well, this fascinating TED Talks episode entitled A Vision of Sustainable Housing for All of Humanity by Vishan Chakrabarti sheds some light. So we have a paradox. How do we house all of these people? How do we build urban, carbon-negative housing in a means that's technologically attainable and broadly affordable and do that today? Because I'm tired of talking about 2050. Vishan is a prominent figure in urban planning and architecture who champions the cause of sustainable, dense and equitable urban development. He makes the case for human density as a solution because dense urban areas can be more energy efficient, environmentally friendly and socially cohesive. By building upwards, not outwards, we can reduce urban sprawl, protect natural habitats and curtail long commutes decreasing our carbon footprint. Now, to get further insights on the future of housing, let's discuss what actions real estate companies are taking to make positive impact with Ben Richford, co-head of real estate sector research at Société Générale. Hi, Ben. Hi, Koku. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. All right. I have a few questions for you on the future of housing. The first one is the following. Housing is clearly an essential part of human needs, but it does have a significant carbon footprint. Can you share with us some of the most credible initiatives to decarbonize that you've come across by the company you cover for both residential and commercial property? Absolutely happy to do so. Yeah, the, the built environment accounts for about 40% of carbon emissions globally. So it's not only a major contributor, but also a major source of potential solutions to the environmental emergency. And the carbon contribution can be broken down into three areas. Scope one, which is the construction of the built environment. Scope two, which comes from the operation of those buildings, think heating, cooling and lighting, essentially. And then scope three, additional carbon that comes from the users of those buildings. Over the last decade or so, major landlords have become ever more sophisticated in the design and implementation of their ESG policies, focused primarily on the environmental aspect. And they're doing this because the environment has become a barrier to entry, driven by three key factors. Um, regulation, whereby more stringent building energy standards, such as the UK's EPC ratings, raise the environmental bar and make more buildings obsolete. Secondly, uh, the financing, as green activities lead to cheaper cost of both debt and equity finance. And thirdly, the customer, which is increasingly demanding green buildings to fit their own ESG profile. And these are leading to higher rents and values for best-in-class buildings, a green premium, if you will, 
And from the listed landlords themselves, they're responding well with a host of green initiatives, including a complete overhaul of building construction with less ground up greenfield development and more redevelopment, a change in the materials mix away from high carbon materials like concrete and towards lower carbon alternatives such as timber, as well as increased recycling of building materials such as steel. Then they're also minimising the ongoing resource drain to operate buildings, which includes improved monitoring and managing through smart buildings and homes, fitting more solar panels to reduce electricity demand from the grid, and on-site rainwater retention and refinement, switching to LED lighting on timers, etc. Well, this is quite uh, impressive. What, um, and more particularly, uh, how can the sector adapt to the physical effects of climate change? I'm thinking, you know, all the uh, news around floods and heat waves. Are there ways to make housing more adaptable to the changes with climate? Well, uh, save for caravans, real estate isn't so easy to pick up and move. So in the short term, the sector can't adapt easily. But when people are forced to move due to nature, they will demand new real estate in new places, and the sector can respond through development. Um, in the meantime, innovation and technology can help make buildings more resilient to natural disasters through building in, for example, shock absorption into building foundations um, or flood barriers to, to help with that situation. Another key impact will be higher insurance premiums, of course, as more buildings become susceptible to the risk of damage. Another question is really around the future. Um, what will housing look like in 2050? Any tips on places that will be popular and those one should definitely avoid? At a global level, the forecast population growth from 8 billion today to 10 billion by 2050 and migration is going to require a material expansion of the built environment, including housing. And despite the disruption brought about by the COVID pandemic, and enabled by technology, we would expect the urbanisation megatrend to continue, so cities will get bigger. That in turn will lead to greater densification of cities, which will need to grow vertically. So more tall buildings in ever bigger cities is the likely outcome. Well, that's fascinating because we um, did do some research and it clearly shows that um, vertical expansion is better than horizontal expansion to limit uh, the sprawl of cities and, and then the uh, carbon footprint and the impact on biodiversity. So it's interesting that you uh, also make a similar point. So you talked about uh, scope one, scope two and scope three emissions. How far along are we in terms of really understanding the carbon footprint of housing across the whole value chain? Well, if you were to open an annual sustainability PDF from a listed landlord, you would see some very thorough analysis that goes over many hundreds of pages in some cases and measures carbon footprint that's currently in place across these three phases. And company targets, usually quite specific, uh, time related uh, for the reduction and that generally quite ambitious. And typically that ends with a net zero ambition for carbon intensity and carbon contribution by a fixed date, 2050 or earlier in some cases. Whether that includes scope one, two and three, that's not the case for all landlords at the moment. That's rare, but certainly over scopes one and two, which are seen as being areas that the, the companies can control. So that's currently where they're, they're at. And scope three is the sort of the dream, which a few companies are looking to control, measure and 
reduce the impact on of the end customer as well. Very interesting. At least some progress is being made. A last question for me is really around housing and, and its social aspect. Clearly, you know, housing is at the crossroads of the green and social aspect of the, uh, the transition. So retrofitting energy inefficient buildings bear a cost that um, not everyone can afford, clearly. And the government can participate, but it's unlikely to be able to bear the full cost. However, it's also a, an important lever for social improvement in terms of health and, and well-being. Uh, do you think the housing transition can be a just transition as well? Well, it's, it's more likely that economics rather than morals drive the change. It's the invisible hand that drives real estate markets with perhaps regulation as a bridge between the two. So when obsolete office buildings, for example, in, in secondary submarkets can't meet environmental standards or attract tenants, then their values will drop to a level that encourages a developer to repurpose that site for alternative use. And this can include housing. So I think it's economics as much as the morals that will lead the, to uh, to change. Yeah, very interesting point in the power of economics over policies. This has been quite fascinating, Ben. Thanks so much for, for your time and your insight. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Take care. To conclude this episode, I'll have Siri share a final thought. Well, maybe, just maybe, if you start treating Earth as your home, you won't need to worry about the big bad wolf anymore. Perfectly put, Siri. And on that note, let's remember the words of Dutch physicist and astronaut Wobble Ockels. There is only one Earth, and there is no spare. Daddy, I have a better quote. It's from Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. There is no place like home. Hey, that was my line! <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors, and thanks to Ben Richford for his insight. Special thanks to my daughters for their remarkable performance. I hope this episode has helped you get a better sense of why our housing needs to adapt to meet the challenges of climate change. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps, if you enjoyed the show, help us spread the word. Please take a minute to subscribe, review and rate it on Apple Podcasts. See you at the next episode. While the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.